So today we're going to talk about Jesus points to our purpose. And so I wanted to take this time as we about to launch into um, a brand new season of Lent to just kind of remind us of who we are as a church. And once again, um, I think about that, and it's actually all over. If you go into the Narthex, sometimes we just kind of walk in, we take it for granted. But, you know, when people come here for maybe the first time, we want them to know exactly what, we're, who, what we are and who we're all about. And so we have our vision statement. We have our purpose statements out there, our core values. And so we're going to talk a bit about that today about our vision for our church to be his hands, feet, and voice. So let me begin by reading a great piece of scripture. That actually comes from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, this is um, a scripture I used on Friday night. I had about five minutes to be able to talk to the whole group, um, all our special needs people, all their buddies, and some of their family members. It was just a beautiful time. And, and I talked a little bit about, actually two words, I talked about their friend, or we called them buddies. So every special needs person had an opportunity to have a buddy that connected with them throughout the, uh, the whole evening and made sure that everything went smoothly. It was just remarkable. So we talked a bit about Jesus being their friend for life and that we all need a friend for life. And then um, I talked a bit about the, you know, the, the whole theme for Friday night was about the night to shine. And we talked a bit about Jesus being the light of the world. He talked about um, himself being the light of the world, but there was a place in which we find in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus talked about us being the light of the world. And I talk with them about how important it is that they can be a part of the light of the world, or to illuminate the light of the world, and that people came here that night to be able to be reflections of Christ's light in the world. So here are these words from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, from the fifth chapter. He says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting the lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So I had the chance to be able to do the devotion this last week at chapel. We always, um, you know, every Wednesday we have uh, staff chapel. And so it was my turn to give, to give a devotion. So um, I was talking to him about, you know, knowing I was going to be preaching on the vision and mission statement of our church. I thought, you know what, it's interesting that it's important for us to remember who we are. And so I immediately started thinking about, now um, uh, there's some, I'm, I was thinking about my, my kid's childhood. And so immediately, um, I don't even remember this, but does anyone remember the Lion King? Okay, so I have my visual aid here today, and so this is a very loved Lion King. I want you to know, this is Simba. A matter of fact, this Simba is one of the original Simbas. Um, actually, this thing's probably 30 years old. We kept it, um, hoping that maybe someday our grandchildren would be able to play with it. So this is our Simba at our house. So I remember when my kids were growing up, they grew up when, when the Lion King was at kind of the very beginning, 19, about 1994. And I remember um, my daughter, Olivia, uh, we only had two kids at the time. We had Olivia and Logan. And so Olivia um, was very much control of her younger brother. I want you to know that. And so um, so I still remember they would hit the cassette tape. This is before CD players, right? Before iPods and anything like uh, uh, digital. So we had a cassette play. Does anybody remember a cassette tape? Okay, all right. So, you know, I, I ate tracks. So they had a cassette tape. They would put it in. They were they would, And so Olivia would dress up in her gown and she dressed up her brother and Logan in a tutu and they would dance around to the Lion King, uh, the circle. I, I still remember that. And so it's interesting about the Lion King. There's a place in that story. And actually, the Lion King has actually pretty good theology. You look at some of the lines in that, there's some really great quotes. And, and so there's a place in the midst of that. So you all remind me of the storyline. So you have the, the Lion King, um, and uh, his name is Mufasa, and he has a little cub. In fact, here's a picture of uh, the Lion King. You might remember that's an iconic video. 
a picture of it. And so there's little Simba as he was born. And so, uh, and so there's, there's the, everything's happy in, the, in that particular kingdom. And all of a sudden, there's this, if you go to any Disney movie, you know there's always this tension between good and evil, right? Over and over again. And so the evil part comes up, and here's a picture of Scar. And so Scar happens to be Mephasa's younger brother. And, of course, Scar is jealous of his brother, and he wants to figure out a diabolical plan to be able to get rid of his older brother because he wants the kingdom. And so, but he knows that there's only one person that stands between him and the kingdom, and it's, it's that little cub named Simba. So he scares Simba, and he ends up running away, and he, so Simba ends up growing up, and he matures. But he doesn't really understand who he really is. He has this kind of identity crisis. There's, he knows there's something more to life. And at one point in the movie, um, and you all might, if you watch it with your kids, there is a kind of a really kind of a defining moment in that movie where Simba, his father, comes back to him in a reflection of the water, and he speaks truth to him, and kind of this inner voice. And this is what he says: "You have forgotten who you are, and so oft, and so have, and and so have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become." And then this next little, next little line is, and there's so, and there's this part where he says, "You need to remember who you are." And so when I thought about putting this together for us to think about tonight or today, I thought about, you know, we need to remember who we are. It's always good to be reminded of who we are and our identity. And so I, I love this quote from actually Rick Warren I mentioned because the idea about who we are has to do with our purpose in our life. And so Rick Warren said this about our purpose. He says, you know, you cannot arrive at your life's purpose by starting with a focus on yourself. You must begin with God, your creator. You exist only because of God wills that you exist. You were made by God and for God. And so you understand that life will never make any sense. It is only in God that we discover our origin, our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our significance, and our destiny. Every other path leads to a dead end. So I was thinking about this this week. And once again, I thought, okay, um, if we want to look at the purpo our, our purpose statement that we find in the Bible... I think that Jesus gives our only, he gives us our purpose, and he defines not only, I think, our purpose, but he also defines God's purpose. And I think we get that really clear in two different ways. I think we get it in a story that Jesus gives, and I think we get it in actually a command. So let me just share with you all, and once again, it reminds us of who we really are. So I think the greatest story ever told, personally, this is my opinion, um, but I think the greatest story ever told is the prodigal son story. I really think it's one of the great. I think even that one and, and the Good Samaritan story, I've shared that with you before. And I preached on those two. Um, I love those two texts. But what's really interesting is I was reflecting upon the prodigal son story. I, I thought, well, you know what? It's very powerful when you think about the kind of the storyline in that story. And so I thought there were some similarities because there's a place in the story, of course, you all know the story, then the father has two sons and one does everything right and one decides, you know what, I'm going to go spend my, I want my fair share in the inheritance, I'm going to spend it on wine, women, song, which he does. And he blows it in a big way. And he goes down crashing and burning, right? But there's a really defining moment in that story, once again. And it says, and I, I think it's one of the greatest lines in all, and that story, but I think it's one of the greatest lines in the Bible where it says, and he came to his senses. And you know, isn't, aren't there been times in our life that are at defining points in our life that maybe we have just come to our senses? And, and so when he comes to his senses, he, I, I think he's kind of going through the, once again, and you can't get any lower than what this guy ends up being, right? The son, he ends up, as Jesus gives us the part of the story, he ends up eating on, feeding on the pods of the, of what the swine would have been eating, and then you can't get any lower than that if you're an Orthodox Jew, right? 
So when he comes to his senses, he finally realizes that he wants to go back to his father. And you know what? He doesn't even realize he's, I think he wants to reclaim what, once again, what he longs to have again. And what he wants to reclaim is he really wants to be with his father again. And so what's very powerful, and I think well, the storyline that, and it reminds us, if, is that the prodigal son remembers he is his father's son, and he is a child of God. Let me say that again. I, what I love about this whole story is that the prodigal son realizes that who he is, he remembers who he is, and ultimately who he belongs to. But there was a place in his life he had forgotten, and he's reminded in the story. He remembers who he is and who he belongs to. You know, it was interesting. I had a conversation with a, a I met a new friend this last week. Um, the other day I was doing a memorial service, and um, he, this particular person, I never met him before, he just came up out of the blue. Um, and he says, hey, are you a runner? And I said, yeah, I am a runner. And um, he said, well, you look like a runner. And I said, are you a runner? He says, yeah, I'm a runner. And so interesting enough, when it comes to you, will you, when runners have this kind of lingo kind of thing going on, when we go back and forth, and, and so we begin to talk a little bit about, you know, running and so forth, we, you know, we hit it, hit it off. And what was interesting the conversation so this is way how it went uh, this is so typical of runners so like uh have you run any marathons yes absolutely i said well i've run you know i've ran the boston marathon five times and i said have you run the boston no i never read that one but i've run other ones and i said wonderful and then he asked me the questions so what was your best time and i said well my best time was three hours and six minutes and then i turned back and said what was your best time and he's two hours and 21 minutes i said oh wow <laughs> Wow, two hours and 20 months. And so I said, are you, so you went to the Olympics, right? And he says, yes, I went to the Olympic trials. He didn't get to the Olympics, but he went to the Olympic trials. This guy was really, I just want you to know, I was humbled. <laughs> so we went to lunch. I said, hey, listen, I'd love to take you to lunch. I'm always looking to meet new people. So we went to lunch and, and we had a great conversation. And we you know I found out about him. He had just recently come, moved to the villages a couple of years ago, and he was really truthful and just so transparent about his life. And um, he said he has been in recovery for two years, and he was so proud. He says, I am, I've been sober for two years, Harold, and I'm just so grateful. You know, there are places in my life I can look back at my life, and I realize I've made some major steps in my life, but you know what? I'm, I'm on this new track in my life. I've got this brand new life. I've come to the villages. I've turned into a new chapter. I'm just so grateful. And then I asked him this question. I said, so let me share it. Let me ask you, so what was the defining moment that you made this shift in your life? And he said, the defining moment was when I realized I didn't want to be in that much pain anymore. He said, I was just tired of being that pain. So I had to make a change in my life. And I thought, man, that is really powerful, isn't it? And there is a kind of a, a similarity to my friend's story and that whole prodigal son story and maybe our stories, isn't it? Sometimes we are in so much pain and we have what I call we come to our senses. And we find that great part of the story. And I love that. It's what I love about the, um, what we find in the, in the story, the prodigal son story. We find this, this great inspiration that we find that we are all children of God and we belong to God and that God's going to offer us this amazing grace and so God's purpose and his identity is to love us and then our purpose ultimately is to love him and you know what's interesting so he gives us that this this purpose that we all have together as a collective body that we're in our relationship with our heavenly father but he also gives it in a very clear stand a mandate 
And we find it in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, and this, once again, Jesus would have really known his scripture, right? He was a rabbi. He, was, he knew the scriptures back and forth. And so when he goes back and when Jesus is talking about our purpose in life, he defines it in this way. You should love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, right? And then Jesus gives that little tagline, and love your neighbor as yourself. Can I amend on that? So it's very powerful that, so Jesus goes back to our historical Judaic tradition that he quotes Deuteronomy, and then he adds this little extra about loving our neighbor ourselves. So I think when we look at the, 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 the purpose that we're called as Christians is that Jesus gives us our marching orders, and he makes it really clear. They love God, and we're to love each other as ourselves. And so I was reflecting upon that, once again, think about this week, and I, I, I love this, once again, that the idea that when we think about, we are called to worship God and honor God and to live a life pleasing to God and to worship God, and that's why we've come here to worship today. And by the way, hasn't the music been wonderful today? Praise the Lord, isn't that great? It's been fantastic. What a great time to be there. But what I love about this, once again, what I love when Jesus says we're supposed to love like this, this is not just kind of a warm, fuzzy, kind of kumbaya war love, right? This is kind of this idea that this is a real determination, determined part of our life type of love. And Mr. Wesley defined it. Of course, John Wesley's the founder of the Methodist Church, and we, you know, appreciate it. It goes back in the 1700s. And so Wesley defined, uh, and he, and this is, once again, it's a tagline within our whole theology as, as Methodist, and it has come heavily down on grace. And Wesley defined holiness as He put us together in, in the early church. He would put people together in these class bands and these societies. And basically, they were small groups. And the small groups would get together. And the whole idea about the small groups was that people could be transparent with each other. And they could hold each other accountable. And it reminded them who they were over and over again. I also love this part, once again, the whole idea of remembering who we are. And um, I love it that Moses, once again, here's a beautiful part of Old Testament history. So here's, Moses has been around with these stick-necked people for 40 years, right? He's been wandering around in the desert, and they're finally kind of getting together. And so God says, okay, finally you're going to be able to, you, you're, you're not going to be able to lead the people into, into the promised land. But listen, and, uh, but your people are about to go into the promised land. And what's very powerful, Moses has this kind of, this kind of um, message for his, all the people of children of Israel. And do you know the clear message is? He says, remember who you are. Do not forget who you are. A matter of fact, don't forget who you are. As a matter of fact, tell your children so that your children can tell their children and their children can tell their children. It's so important. You've got to remember who you are. And who you are is that you're a child of God. A matter of fact, that goes back to the book of Genesis, that we're created in God's image, that we're all God's children. Give amen on that. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So even in the Old Testament, when Moses talks about the idea that the children of Israel are about to go into this brand new chapter, this brand new chapter of life, and they're going to go, it's a really big deal. They've been waiting for 40 years. And what does Moses do? He reminds them over and over again, do not forget who you are. So that's a defining moment in the children, in the children of Israel's history. So when we ask ourselves, what's the defining moment in Jesus' life? And so, yeah, obviously, it's the Jesus' death and resurrection, but there's a few moments just before all this unfolds. So I think one of the most defining moments, and once again, it reminds, I think that Jesus, once again, is reminded about her, his purpose. And it becomes really real and really raw when it all comes crashing down on the Sermon um, um, on the Mount of Olives, um, the night before he was to be crucified. 
So what's very interesting, if you go back and read that particular text and you think about, once again, Jesus' defining moment, it says, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, and there's a comma there. And you know what? I think that Jesus took a deep breath right there. I don't know how long that comma holds, but I do believe, I think Jesus took a deep breath. And then he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Let me say that again. So he says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup from me. Pause. Yet not my will, but your will be done. A defining moment in Jesus' life. And you know what? I think he remembers exactly who he is in that moment and what he's called to do. And he reminds that he is reminded in that moment of his purpose, and he knew exactly what he had to do. Now, what's very interesting, let me just teach for a second. I have my little, um, my iPad up here. So let me show you. I, I think this, I'm going to give you an image, and so if we can put this up on the screen. This is an image of the, whole, uh, of the old city of Jerusalem. And so let me just make, make this a little bit more real for us. So here is the old city. See, is it working? So this is the old city, still here today. Okay, this is the Dome of Rock. And there's a few gates along the way around throughout here. Okay, so what's interesting, this is what I want you to understand. This ridge right here is where we find, we find the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives, right? So the Mount of Olives is right here. This is where this, uh, that, that conversation I was just describing, it's right down here, right? And so what's very interesting, when you think about the Mount of Olives, there's a mountain ridge that runs right across this way. So what I want you to understand, and most people don't quite understand this unless you kind of actually go to the Holy Land and experience it yourself. Because, so when you think about the Mount of Olives, it's actually got a hill, and it goes along, and one side of the hill looks out over Jerusalem this way. But the other side, I want you to know, if you go this direction, there's nothing but desert. And so if he would have gone back, the, uh, he would have gone back over the hill back 2,000 years ago, he could have very easily escaped that night. But he chose, one minute, he chose to ultimately, hold on, he chose to go this direction rather than that direction. Now, what's powerful about that to me, and I think it's just, a, once again, a visual image of the importance of that moment I just read to you, where Jesus says, Lord, if there's any other way, can you please take this cup from me? Silence. Not my will, but your will be done. So we have this, this great image today. We have this idea of remembering who we are. The children of Israel remember are reminded who they are because Moses says, remember who you are. Tell your children, tell your grandchildren, tell your great-grandchildren, remember who you are. Who are you? We're all children of God. And that's a really powerful statement. And what Jesus teaches us, that he ultimately defines his purpose, is we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor, ourselves, and we can only get that. And so I, what I love about our church is we have a vision. And a vision is really wrapped up in all that. And Wesley would describe it in holiness, to love God and love our neighbor. And so what I'm, can you put that picture of the vision and mission up for us? So here's our vision statement. So this is what I want us to remember today, because I want to remember who we are as a New Covenant United Methodist Church, a place to call home, right? So can you repeat this with me? To be a thriving body of Christ by being his hands, his feet, and voice in the world. And this is our mission statement, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation. I want you to remember that. The reason why, I, and, and this is really, really important, and not only do we want you to remember it, we have actually put it up in our narthex so you can remember it. 
and you commit it to memory. It's a very simple, just two simple sentences, but this is part of who we are. And then we have our core values. I think I have a picture of the slide of our core values. Do I have a picture of the core values? So here's it's uh, spiritual growth. Can you say this with me? Spiritual growth, hospitality, generosity, community, invitation, service, and care. This is who we are. Okay. So here's what I want us to understand. I've got 13 more minutes to preach. All right? so nobody's looking at their watch. I know that. But I'm looking at the watch. Okay. All right. So here's what I want to spend the second half of this message today and talk about. I went back this last week and I said, okay, I want to go back and look at scripture because I want our, my people to understand from a scriptural standpoint what it means to be the hands, feet, and voice. Okay. So I, I thought it was really powerful. So let me just teach for a second about hands. If you go back and look at the scripture, I think it's 1,087 times the word hands is mentioned in the Bible. And there's, I think, 97 times in which there is a, there's a, in the context of laying hands on other things or people. So there are places in the Bible that laying hands on other people, that the significance of hands is a really big deal. So we find it over and over again. So when Jesus, once upon a time, that um, there were evidently maybe some parents or some mothers who were bringing their children to, ble- to be ble- blessed by Jesus, right? They're, the disciples were rebuking the parents. Don't, you know, you get back. Don't bother him. And then Jesus says, hey, don't let them, Don't hinder the little children. Bring them to me. If you go back and like that scripture, it's really clear. What does Jesus do? He lays hands on the children. He blesses them. Also, we find um, there's a place in which we find in the New Testament, the book of Acts, that there's a sense of laying hands on people that empower the Holy Spirit to come and lay hands. We find that. We find in the Old Testament there, they would lay hands on like a bull or some kind of sacrificial animal before they would sacrifice it to be consecrated before God in order to make an atonement for their sins and make a sacrifice before God. There was laying hands on that. And of course, most importantly, we find over and over again, when you think about all the times when Jesus did lots of different miracles, right? There were times in which Jesus just said the word and somebody would be healed. There were times in which, you know, Jesus would do something very significant and Jesus would lay hands on the person and they would be healed. Sometimes he did it, sometimes he didn't. But over and over again, there's power. We, I love that story about the crippled woman. I think she'd been crippled for 18 years, right? And see, so she comes to him and Jesus lays hands on her and all of a sudden she could stand up. It's a powerful story. But it doesn't happen until Jesus lays hands on her. So I thought, okay, so there's, from a, from a spiritual standpoint, there's a power in the anointing of people. There have been times in my life when I've been over, you know, when I've gone to somebody's deathbed, right? I know that someone's about coming to the end of their life, and I've laid hands on them, prayed over them. We've held hands around the person as we dedicated their life and, and ultimately offered their life to Christ because we know they're in hospice and the time is not, it's drawing near. And there's something very powerful about anointing people, laying hands on people. There is power in that. So there's that part from a spiritual standpoint, from a biblical standpoint about what it means to be the hands of Christ. But then there's also a very practical side about being the hands of Christ. And I think about when the idea, well, the word mission comes to my mind. So here's what I, to me, let me show you a few visual images of what it means to be in the hands of Christ. There's our brand new Habitat home that we're building right now, right? That to me is what it means to be the hands of Christ. And then here, I love that picture. What to be the hands of Christ is to collect shoe boxes every year for children, right? And then here's something about being the hands of Christ and offering wells to children in Africa. We've done that. And then here's a picture of them working at my wife's church down at Lake Pan and giving out food at the food pantry, that is, and then here's a picture of me and Donna giving out a quilt. So to me, these are all examples of what it means and to live in, and we're reminded today, and that's the reason I'm preaching this sermon today, is reminded of who we are and our identity and what it means to be the hands of Jesus Christ.
to be his hands, feet, and voice. And so what I, I love about the, the identity that Jesus reminds us today is that we are called to be in mission and to care for people. And I, I guarantee you, let me, when Gary Bullock started this church 24 years ago, you know, I know he was extremely intentional about being outwardly focused. And I know that God has blessed our church in so many different ways because we've tried to be very obedient to this calling that Christ has called us to be in mission and outreach. And it's not about us, but we're focused on other people. So I, I love that, once again, I love that and even if you go back to the very beginning of the nativity story and Mary kind of, once again, has this conversation with the angel and she is reminded, we call the Magnificat, and she says, you know, he has brought down the rulers from the thrones. He has lifted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has helped the servant Israel remember to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he has promised his ancestors. So we have that in the New Testament, and we have these, once again, this is on the lips of Mother Mary. Okay, so let me tell you what happens with his, her son, Jesus. This is what Jesus says at the very beginning, and he preaches his first sermon. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the freedom of the prisoners and recover the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free. Is there some similarities in these two stories? Yes. I also love, and once again, I, I love this part, when the, I, the Gospel of Luke, and I did a whole sermon series on Luke recently, and I, I, what I love about Luke is, once again, it's a gospel of nobodies, right? It's, a, it's over and over again, you, Jesus is lifting up the lowly, and we find that. And there's, I, I love the story where, once again, how out of anybody that Jesus could have actually done this for just before, by the way, if you look at the details, just before Jesus is actually about to go make his way into on Palm Sunday. So the next week, you know, he's going to die. The last thing that Jesus does before he goes in on Palm Sunday, guess who he has a conversation with? Zacchaeus. And who is Zacchaeus? Dirty, Zacchaeus is a dirty, rotten scoundrel. He's down at Jericho. And you know, he's, a, he's ripping everybody off. And yet Jesus wants to have a conversation with that dude. So Zacchaeus goes and climbs up, what, a sycamore tree? Jesus goes and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm going to come to your house today. Y'all remember that song, right? Remember that from Sunday school? And so what's very interesting is that it says that, don't miss the details, so Jesus is, it says that Jesus is willing to break bread with him. And the word breaking bread literally means that it's the, it has to be to be in communion together. He was a companion together. So all of a sudden, and this, this, if you look at the Greek and the Hebrew, what's very powerful is that Jesus is willing to be someone who's a dirty, rotten scoundrel's companion. Just before he's about to be into Palm Sunday, it's the last thing he does before he goes in the beginning of Passion Week. Wow, that's powerful. So we have the idea that to be the hands of Christ. Okay, so here's the second part, is that we are called to be the feet of Christ. So what does that really mean? So when I think about the word feet, I think over and over again. So I was thinking about um, the humility that's involved in feet, right? So I love this image of Jesus with, the, and this is actually in the Passion of Christ. So this is the woman, I think it's the woman caught in adultery. And she finds herself at Jesus' feet, right? And she's, you know, just asking for mercy. So they're all about to condemn her. And they're all about to stone her, right? And so Jesus gets down, he doodles in the ground, and gets up, and, and so he ends up saying, hey, you without faith, um, cast a, or you without sin, cast the first stone, right? You remember that? And one by one, as beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they all drop their stones, and finally they're all gone. And so there is the woman, Jesus' feet, 
And she says, who's left to condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Wow. There's a lot of grace there, isn't it? And what's powerful about that is that she's at Jesus' feet. So then I started thinking about the idea of feet and the humility of feet. So let me tell you something. I, you know what? I'm going to tell you, I've got ugly feet. I just got ugly feet. I mean, I, I looked at my feet before my shower last night. I'm looking and sizing them up. And I'm thinking, you know what? I've got five pretty good looking toes and I've got five really ugly toes because of all the running I've done in my life. And so I'm not looking real good. And I want you to know something. Out of all the jobs, I did share this with my staff this last weekend doing my devotion. Out of all the jobs I would not want, here's a picture of the one I would not want. I would not want to be the person that does the nails at Walmart that has to do the nails at Walmart. I, I would not want that job. I mean, I can think of a lot of jobs, but to be the nail person at Walmart would not be on my top 10 list, right? I mean, there's something really humbling about, you know, dealing with someone's feet, right? And yet we find over and over again, there's such great humility in dealing with people's feet. And you find it over and over again that people are at Jesus' feet. You think about the story about Mary and Martha. You know what I love about Mary? Martha, you know, Martha's all kind of ticked off her brother, her sister because she won't come in and help do the dinner because Jesus has come to into the house and, and so she's huffing and puffing and where's Mary? At Jesus' feet. When they're about, you know, they're really, they're actually Mary and Martha were pretty ticked off at Jesus because they didn't come because they thought that he should get there to be able to do something for their brother Lazarus before he died. But by the time he got there, it's four days. He's already stinketh in the, in the, um, in the tomb. And they goes, you know, Jesus, you should have been here, right? But where do you find Mary? At Jesus' feet. There's something really powerful about being the Jesus' feet. So there's a spiritual part, but then also there's something very powerful about Jesus' commission for us to go and make disciples for all the world. So when I think about the being the feet of Christ, there's something about humility, but there's something very powerful about getting our feet and moving forward for Jesus Christ. And the last thing it has to do with the voice. And so I love the scripture when we think about the voice of Christ is that there is a place that we find in the scripture where Jesus refers to us as ultimately sheep. And the sheep know the master's voice. There's something really powerful about knowing the voice of Jesus Christ. So here's what I know in my life. Has anybody ever said something that you could take, wish you could take back? Yeah. Believe me, I know. And so, you know what, I think about, when you think about being the voice of Christ, I think, man, there's some really, there's some, there's a deeper sense of that about if we're called ourselves to be Christian, if somebody asks you today, are you a Christian? You say, absolutely, I believe in Jesus, I believe in his death and his resurrection, and I'm, I'm a true believer, and I love the Lord, and I'm grateful, Lord, and I know his command is to love God and love our neighbor. I understand all that. And Pastor Harold shared with me, that's part of my purpose in life, and I understand, and I'm claiming that identity, and I remember that, and I'm grateful for that, Yes. But see, do, does all that really match up sometimes with our words? And there's a very practical part of this message today. It's like, do our words match up with our identity of being Christians? And sometimes I think that we're really good at that, and then sometimes we're not really good at that. So there's something very powerful about that. And then the last part of this is I think that our words, once again, can be, one, they can be a blessing or a curse, but I also I think that they can, our words can be an inspiration to other people. Just as I shared with you all last week, that sometimes God can use your story for his glory. Can amen on that? Sometimes God can use your story for his glory. And so how can we take our words to ultimately point other people to Jesus Christ? Because we love Jesus. 
And he's worthy to be worshipped here today. And that's the reason why we have come here today. We've come to worship the King of Kings. So I, I close with this last little photo. And speaking of words, so um, my friend Doug Huff, he's not here today, but um, he was here, he was one of the buddies for um, one of the special needs people. And he, um, he had a person who um, was in a wheelchair the whole night, and his, the person he had, a young man, uh, had very few communication skills. And so I asked Doug at the very evening, I said, you know, how did it all go? And he says, Harold, I had such a great time. And um, he said that his, his buddy only shared three words the whole night. Three words. The first word was the word balloon. The second word was Mickey Mouse. And the third word was Jesus. Can you put that picture up? So here is a selfie of my friend Doug taking a picture of his buddy in the image of a balloon. And to me, that's what it means to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus Christ. And remember that today. And that is we continue to remain focused on.